This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. What draws people back in time from the here and now? I am so very intrigued by people whose main area of research takes place sometimes thousands of years in the past in a world that is quite difficult to observe from our current positions in the here and now in 2021. Sometimes people are drawn to a specific century. Sometimes people are drawn to a specific location. And sometimes the focus narrows in even more to perhaps burials, perhaps houses of worship. My guest on this episode is Sarah F. Porter. And we get deep into the topic of why specific time periods and interests draw scholars in and what holds their attention. Sarah F. Porter is a PhD candidate in the Committee on the Study of Religion at Harvard University with a concentration in New Testament and early Christianity and a secondary field in archaeology. She holds an MDiv from Vanderbilt University Divinity School with a certificate in gender, sexuality, and religion, and she earned her BA in English and religion from Southwestern University. Currently, she is a William R. Tyler Fellow at Dumbarton Oaks Research Library Collection. Her dissertation is called Early Christian Deathscapes, and it examines the production and flow of affects through the martyria, cemeteries, and homilies of 4th century Antioch, which is modern-day Antakya in Turkey. We discuss all these topics. We also discuss Porter's work surrounding the Museum of the Bible, located in Washington, D.C. And we also discuss why she would invite my high school students to a cemetery and describes how she would get them to think about deathscapes. You can follow Porter's work on Twitter at twitter.com slash portersf. And I just want to say that I'm really grateful for these nuanced conversations on topics that are brand new to me. I'm deeply, deeply lucky to be able to have conversations like this. And without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Sarah F. Porter. Sarah Porter, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks. It's amazing to be here, Greg. I'm so excited to have you and to talk about all of your areas of interest. Um, Sarah, I wonder if we can just start off by having you sort of introduce yourself a little bit to the audience so they can know who you are and what you do. Yeah, um, I am Sarah Porter. I'm a doctoral candidate in early Christian studies in the Committee for the Study of Religion at Harvard University. Um, I'm in my sixth year, so I'm plugging away at this dissertation on uh, deathscapes in fourth century Antioch and its early Christians' use of them. Wow, interesting. Okay, this is, you just said so many little words that I want to dive into and unpack. So I always usually start by having people sort of trace their academic path because I'm so interested in why people who study what they study wind up at that point. Um, I know that you're into early Christianity, the New Testament, archaeology, and then you said this very mysterious and alluring word, deathscapes, which I've been wrestling and tossing around in my brain for the last few days. So, Sarah, can you tell me a little bit about what some of your stepping stones were that led you down the path that you've traveled academically, like could be like major turning points in youth or undergrad or grad school, anything that really jumps out to you as a major turning point in in your scholarly life? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I was a high-minded and confident child. <laughs> like I knew, I felt like I was right about everything. Um, so growing up as a Baptist in Texas, I really wanted to get Christianity right. Um, and so I, I wanted to study Christian origins and I was um, convinced that I would find something pure and uncomplicated and replicable there. And the more that I studied, the more I realized it was incredibly messy. There was never just one voice to Christianity. Um, and that made it all the more entrancing for me. So I kept studying it. Um, and yeah, yeah, I studied it through college and went to grad school and kept going. What was your undergrad um, emphasis? Like, did you go in interested in religion right away as an undergrad? Yeah, I'm a weird one. Um, I went to Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, which is a wonderful small liberal arts college that I can definitely give a plug to wholeheartedly. Um, I majored in religion and English. I knew I wanted to read for the rest of my life, um, but I wasn't sure which things I wanted to be reading for the rest of my life and double majored. Uh, I was dismayed that there were no theology classes there as that sort of like judgmental kid coming into college. But mm. they had all these amazing world religion classes and religion and literature. And those professors, Molly Jensen, Laura Hobgood Oster, Helene Meyer, Ken Mello are the ones who are responsible for sort of cracking open my brain um, to see the diversity of religious experience in the world. Um, I worked on a project about women's authority in early Christianity there as my last hurrah. Um, and that took me a little bit into material culture um, and by which I mean like inscriptions and stuff mm, from yeah. <laughs> um, And I, I graduated early because I, I came out to my parents and had to kind of rush through college and um, went straight into divinity school at Vanderbilt where um, they were fully supportive and very generously funded. Mm. Also, plug for Vanderbilt Divinity School. Wonderful, <laughs> nice. I love um, when people have good, positive experiences about their path instead of like a lot of you know horrible things to say. No, yeah, I'm fortunate to have run into many wonderful mentors. So um, I worked in queer theory and early Christianity at Vanderbilt as well. The big turning point was an archaeological dig that I went to my final year there. Um, and I did it to kind of flesh out my CV, but it ended up, uh, it was run by Joe Reif, who's in the department at Vanderbilt. And it was at Kenkriai, which was a little harbor town in Greece. And um, we were excavating a cemetery. So, mm. you know. You, I, you really read my mind there. I was going to ask about where archaeology comes into play. Um, so was that experience of doing the archaeological dig at the cemetery essential for you as far as like becoming interested in this concept of deathscapes that you later become interested in in your PhD program? Exactly. Um, you can draw a bright line from that experience to the dissertation. Um, I, I came out of that that summer and went into some more queer theology and queer theory classes at Vanderbilt and realized these are places where people are connecting across time with their ancestors and talking to people in the future through their gravestones. And uh, yeah, uh, this is place, this is a kind of place where weird stuff happens with, with time and social stuff and, and space. So fabulous. Well, before we dive in specifically to the studies that you've done, the dissertation, the articles that you've written, I want to talk a little bit about sacred rights. Um, the fellowship that you currently have as a member of the current cohort they are focused on public scholarship, public facing scholarship, which is obviously something that I care very deeply about doing a show like this. And I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about why you applied to the fellowship and maybe how you see yourself growing as a writer or a public facing scholar. Like, how are you finding this process and why did you get involved? Yeah, part of it was sheer greed. Uh, I know the mm. people involved with sacred rights are incredible people. Uh, and I know that every experience I've done that put me together with people in other parts of religious studies than me, like 2000 years in the future or 2000 miles away, has enriched and made my thinking better. And so I'm always looking for people to connect with and talk to. 
Um, as far as my my formation, the kind of kind of gauntlet that they put you through with testing out these different public voices through op-eds or podcasting with you or mm. um, or even tweet threads, uh, it, it helps you because it helps it's helping me become a more um, a person who can move more quickly between voices, which is so important when you want to talk to so many other people because it's not just other scholars that enrich my thinking. It's everyone mm-hmm. that I come in contact with who enriches my thinking. And people are interested in this old dead stuff too. Uh, <laughs> pleasantly, that's a pleasant surprise to me. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Fabulous. Um, so you have a dissertation that you've alluded to and that you've mentioned that you're working on. And the title is so, so cool. It's just early Christian deathscapes. And you know, I read that you examine the production and flow of artifacts um, in like cemeteries in the fourth century in what is like now modern day Turkey, I think. Um, can you verbalize what gripped you as like a 21st century person into studying the fourth century in Turkey? What is it about this time and place for you and what compels you into this particular setting? Yeah, this is such a vibrant time and place. Uh, Early Christians, so earliest Christians are around the first century. Um, By the fourth century, they become a bit of a market force. So they start producing their own objects and buying objects and the market has to cater to them a little bit. So you see them leaving their marks on the landscape much more in the fourth century than you've seen it in preceding centuries. And it'll just take off from there. So the fourth century is a really interesting time um, where they're deciding, I think, a little bit how they're going to be in public, how they're going to be a political force, how they're going to be an aesthetic force. Uh, And with regard to the the place itself, I'm looking at Antioch, which uh, was a gigantic force, a gigantic political and cultural force as a city in antiquity. It's modern day Antakya. And... um, you know, it sits now at the modern border between Turkey and Syria. And in antiquity, it kind of sat near where, you know, this nexus between Persia and Rome. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. In Antioch, we have a lot of text too, to match up with the material culture. A lot of cities, you don't get both. Uh, But there were prolific writers in the fourth century in Antioch, uh, like, the very verbal Christian, John Chrysostom, and the equally kind of bloviating Libanius who loves his city and wants to talk about it all the time. And even the Emperor Julian writes from from Antioch. So you get these snapshots of conflict and then you can look at the material culture and think about what they have to say to each other. Interesting. How does Christianity um, spread into Turkey, like from the first century to the fourth century? Like how does it become this, this, place of vast architecture, uh, archaeological like wealth that you're looking at now? That's a great question. So it's an archaeological wealthy site, uh, place even aside from Christianity. So emperors are keen to leave their marks there and the cities of Turkey or what we call then Asia Minor are keen to show the emperors that they love them. And so they put things up to say so. Christianity spreads uh, into what we call Asia Minor extremely quickly. Uh, so even at the time um, uh, that revelation is written at the turn of the first century, those that first chapter is all about churches in Turkey. And Antioch is mentioned in the New Testament as the place where these folks are first called Christians. Uh, so there's a presence there quickly. There's also a vibrant present of presence of ancient Jews there, we know. Um, and so it's a multi-religious place early on. This seems like essential, like as far as like the history of Christianity goes, like this place seems to like it should be mentioned alongside almost any other major site that we think about as being essential then, right? I mean, this seems like way more important than I've ever really considered. Uh, Yeah, I think you're right. Um, A lot of other people think you're right too. Theologians talk about Antioch all the time. Uh, It's a place where a lot of theological conflict is going on. Uh, So 
Yeah, we could geek out about uh, theological schools in antiquity, of which Antioch is one, Alexandria is one, but I'll leave that. Well, the reason I'm so curious about that is because like as a high school teacher who teaches about religion with, you know, 18, 17 year olds, I'm always thinking about things that I've overlooked in my own teaching. And I feel like this might be something that I may want to inject into my own classroom, you know? Yeah, maybe if you want to, let me know. I'd love to talk to your students. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'll have to think about that. Let me let me let me ponder these ideas. Um Sarah, before we get into some like more specific information involving your writing, I'm curious what compels you to study the ancient. Like, have you have you been able to figure this out for yourself? Why in 2021? Why you care so much about the ancient? I know you were, earlier you said you wanted to get Christianity right, but it seems like your thinking has evolved from there. I hope tell me, so. t- tell me what it is about the ancient that that keeps you so invested. Yeah, you're right. So it's partially that that hook um, from early on. Uh, it's partially the delightful surprise that I had when I found that my assumptions were wrong. Um, it's partially the deep strangeness of the ancient. Um, I think a lot of times we hasten to uh, draw comparisons with ourselves in the ancient, but when we look for differences, it becomes even more interesting the the way the multiple ways humans can be. Uh, I think there's also this. Um, So Carolyn Dinshaw, a medievalist, says that uh, queer historiography is touching across time. Queer history writing is trying to touch across time. And previous guests of yours, like Maya Katripsis, really Mm -hmm. want to interrogate that urge. Um, So I interrogate that urge, but the desire is still there. The desire Mm -hmm. to touch across time is still there. Um, And that, even if it's impossible, still drives me. It's this kind of asymptotic draw. I tell you what, out of all the conversations that I've had on this show, I'm glad that you brought up Maya Katrosa. because that was one of the most uh, challenging and like sort of like mind bending conversations for me that I've ever had. Because, you know, this is all the I talk about so many things that are brand new to me. And so I feel like this show offers me so much room just to grow in my own thinking and understanding about the world and having conversations with you or Dr. Katrosa. about these ancient concepts and rethinking how we think about the ancient, it's just so endlessly fascinating for me. And I feel like the wealth of uh, growth for myself personally is pretty, pretty vast, you know? So that's pretty cool. She's wonderful. And that's an amazing book. And I'm glad I, you talked to her. I love it. Well, okay. So let's talk about my students for a second, right? Let's, let's imagine this, this room full of high school students. So imagine you are speaking to a curious room of high school students about your dissertation. I want you to explain what Deathscapes is in a way that uh, like modern high schoolers would, you know, sort of be engaged with. Yeah. So I'd invite them to a cemetery and they'd show up at a cemetery and that would show that you're in the right place. So this is a place, this is a death place, a cemetery. Um, when I ask you to think about the cemetery you're standing in as a deathscape, I'm asking you to think about additional things, like in addition to the fact of dead bodies and the fact of remembering that you do at a cemetery, I'm asking you to think about social differences that you see around you in the gravestones, social differences in names or class. Um, I'm asking you to think about how your body feels and why, who told you to feel that way in a cemetery. Um, I'm asking you to look around and see what other people are doing there. Like, do you see litter? Do you see evidence that someone has, you know, wandered in there late at night with nowhere else to sleep and has, you know, had a meal there? Um, I'm asking you if your voice changes, that it hushes a little bit, or if it doesn't, is it more like a playground? Um, Is it maintained? Is it pleasant? Um, So these are all questions about how culture has formed the death space and how the death space acts back on us. So I'm asking you to think about a place, so as a pin on a map, but then to turn it into a kind of 3D experience. So senses, culture, feelings are all still here. Um, And that's what I mean by deathscape. Fabulous. How did you get interested in, in death particularly and these like deathscapes? Because you know, you've explained your origin of why you're interested in Christianity and archaeology, but what is it? Because you could study anything from ancient, the ancient world, like you could study like architecture or buildings, but you've chosen 
death and cemeteries, what is it about that that, you know, that sucks you in? Yeah, I mean, part of it is, and I'm not the only one, part of the reason a lot of people study cemeteries is because pragmatically, they can be nicely closed archeological contexts. So a grave probably is not gonna get opened unless it's looted. Um, so it doesn't get piled in on itself the way, you know, a city is built on top of itself forever. Um, so that's the practical aspect. Another aspect is, you know, it's a really interesting flashpoint in a, in a place that's changing as much as a place like Antioch is in the fourth century. So I've got to respect my elders and the people who came before me who believe differently than I do, who I love. And I've got to respect sort of the change that's happening in the way I see the world as religious perspectives are colliding in Antioch. Well, how does that show up in this one space where past and present are all mushed up together? Um, so that's part of what makes it really interesting to me. I love it. Well, you know, what's really fascinating is like, I'm, I'm soaking this in and then I'm thinking about my my seven-year-old daughter who is extremely fascinated with cemeteries when we drive by she's like oh look there's all the stones and she's so interested and like when we when we live we live in buffalo and we go to forest lawn cemetery which is this massive old cemetery right in the middle of the city and she absolutely loves it because of the the peacefulness of the place like she sees it as like a, a peaceful serene place and she just loves to walk around and look at the the etchings and the ways that gravestones are written on and the different sizes and like if there's like an obelisk or a monument or a statue or sculpture and she loves the diversity that you can find within the setting of a cemetery that i'd imagine is probably something that really intrigues you as well right mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and we're so lucky to have those places. We also need to think about them as classed and racialized spaces. So a lot of cemeteries do get built over and don't anymore become peaceful places. Those are mm. often, you know, poor pauper cemeteries or um, slave cemeteries. Um, so we should be cognizant of which cemeteries are not accessible to us too. Absolutely. Um, so have you done any travel around the dissertation, like to these places uh, or anything like that? I haven't been able to make it to Antakya, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. Um, but I have done a lot of traveling in Western Turkey, uh, which helps seed these ideas. Um, so it's not just Antioch, right? Uh, a lot of ancient cities have cemeteries that... Um, and they have been excavated much better. So, <laughs> um, so for example, there's a place called Hierapolis that not a lot of folk, I, did, I hadn't heard of it before I started studying it. And the road in there is just lined with sepulchers, um, you know, sarcophagi, tombs, and you get a sense really of what it's like to enter the city through the necropolis, which is quite a common feeling in antiquity. So there's nothing like going. And I, I've done some, um, some field work at Sardis, which is also a a big ancient city in Asia Minor, though now a smaller village called Sart. Um, and I've that was incredibly lucky. I was an archivist there and yeah. Fabulous. Well, I read something in um, uh, some information about your dissertation regarding affect and doing the work of history. And I'm wondering if you can, I recently had a, an episode that we did on affect theory with Donovan Schaefer, but I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about affect and how to work with affect as a historian, because this is uh, some stuff that really intrigues me as well. And I'm still learning a lot about. Yeah. So I'm really excited that you've recently talked about Donovan and Maya, uh, Professor Schaefer and Professor Kutrosis, um, who work with affect in quite different ways. Uh, and that's because, as, as I think Professor Schaefer talked to you about, there are many genealogies in affect theory. Um, so there's sort of the psychoanalytic route, there's this um, Deleuzian route, which is uh, frankly a little bit over my head. And uh, then there's this kind of cultural emotional route, which is the one that I use most. So that starts from the premise that rather than being a private feeling, affect is a public practice, uh, is something we do with each other. It's something that leaves material impacts in the world. It's, and that 
is really helpful for the historian because that's what we look for. That's what we look for when we do history. We look for material traces and cause and effect. And um, people like Sarah Ahmed, who I use most, um, have shown that you know this is an external thing that moves. Uh, feelings and affect are an external thing that moves and is material. So um, that's how I use it. You have to be a little careful. I try not to psychoanalyze my subjects. Uh, <laughs> The inside of their brains actually is impossible for me to see, uh, but I look for for the way it moves, mm. I look for the way affect moves. You know, you got me thinking about something that you said a few minutes ago as well about the racialized, the class nature of some of these sites that you're talking about. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that, about what that looks like in your dissertation. That's a great question. So part of the romance of archaeology that people like to say about it is that it makes voices accessible that aren't accessible through texts, which is true to an extent. Only the elite read texts, uh, and a lot more people leave ceramic shards in law, like yards. Uh, however, the kind of material that remains is still going to be classed to an extent. It's the durable stuff. It's the stuff that people thought was worth tucking away. Uh, and so you can get traces of, of class in an archeological deposit, um, but you can't ever be sure that you're getting the whole story. The way racialization happens in antiquity, as you might know, uh, is, is a such a live issue right now. Um, so it looks quite different than it looks now, but there is certainly uh, ways of othering people based on geographical origin, skin tone, uh, religion, and there are ways of oppressing people based on those things like enslavement or um, conquering. And so that's all at work in Antioch too, of course. Um, I notice it in really interesting places. So John Chrysostom, the preacher in Antioch, he, a, a dead body is buried, at, uh, dug up by the emperor at one point because he doesn't like where it is. It's, it's in the wrong place. He wants to put it somewhere else. And John makes this really interesting claim. Like we don't even treat our migrants this way. Mm. Like you are exiling him from his place of repose against all natural law and um, force, forcing him into migration, a forced migration, a forced exile. Um, so those are, I don't know yet what to make of it, but it's important to always keep an eye out for the way difference is established through you know, both what people say and what they do um, and the way power moves through those. Mm, very interesting. Okay. so. What are some of like the major sections that you have going on in your, your dissertation? Like what's the organizational structure of like this, these stories that you're telling? How are you putting this together? Yeah, uh, it circles around this martyr who I just alluded to. His name is Babalas. And his body moves from place to place because people keep not liking where he is. They're thinking oh he would be better somewhere else. So uh, he's buried in the community cemetery uh, he's moved to a shrine at Daphne, which is sacred to traditional Antiochians, people who aren't Christians. The emperor doesn't like that, moves him back to the common cemetery. And then a bishop, one of several in Antioch at the time, it's contested, uh, moves him to a church that he builds around him. Monumental church, largest church in Antioch at the time, to claim that authority back for his community. And in fact, he buries himself with Babylas in the mm. church. <laughs> um, so that's the framing narrative of the dissertation. And I explore what a corpse does for early Christians, uh, how it troubles the city in the first chapter. Mm. Uh, then I move to the archaeological evidence that we have for that cemetery um, in Antioch. And it's, it's a little bit shoddy evidence. Uh, it was excavated extremely partially in the 1930s. But we have the field notebooks and we can start to kind of patch together what a cemetery may have looked like in late antiquity in Antioch. Uh, and then I turn to, in chapter three, um, some sermons John gives in the cemetery. 
So it's used as a sacred place for the Christian community on certain feast days and on Good Friday. Uh, and he tries to paint it as this pleasurable place where you can go to learn important things about spiritual truths. Uh, so kind of like what your daughter might be doing when she goes to encounter the peace of the cemetery. Okay, this is really interesting. So, Sarah, you're working with this 19, these 1930s field <laughs> reports about yeah. something that is from the fourth century, right? Like these, the place from the fourth century, the field notebooks from the 1930s. How is this uh, hard for you? Tell me about the challenge of of doing this work because the it's it seems so challenging, um, but also important. It is hard, um, and there are two more chapters. Uh, so there, it is hard, um, partly because of the kind of vagaries of time. Uh, so there's the archaeological moment where in the 1930s, people weren't super scientific about their archaeology. Um, so the phasing, I mean, when each thing is from is is bad. It's, it's like badly done. So I can't say this artifact is from this exact place and it was made in this particular century, the way that people can do in other archaeological sites. So that's a challenge. It's also a joy. I love messing around with these 1930s notebooks and kind of, you know, seeing the doodles they made when they were bored in the field or the That's way awesome. they, they drew to make sense of things that they couldn't quite verbalize yet. Um, some of them are in French and stubby pencil and some of them are in English. So it's, it's fun. And Julia Gerhardt at Princeton is the one who oversees this archive and she is magnificent. So I just want to give a shout out. Amazing. Um, and then of course I can't make it to Antakya right now. So that's really frustrating too. Yeah. You know, when I was talking to Susanna Kravolsky up and she was talking about the work that historians do and how you can make certain claims and others. So she was making the distinction of what is super hard about being a historian, which I found so interesting. And that conversation is just leaping out at me as I'm talking to you about these resources and these artifacts that you're looking at. But I want to know more about the other chapters in your dissertation. What else? What comes next? What comes next is that church that this bishop builds for this corpse. <laughs> so they also excavated that. Unfortunately, they backfilled it. So yeah. they put all the dirt back on top. Um, it's a gigantic cruciform church. And what was left was beautiful mosaic pavements. Uh, and they're geometric. So I talk a little bit about how someone might have felt walking into that space, what we can kind of gather from the archaeology. And John gave a sermon there too. So that's the last chapter. And he talks about um, this bishop who was buried there next to Babylon the martyr as a love charm. Uh, he He's speaking to an Antioch that is riven by conflict. There are four competing bishops. And he says, you all love him so much. And it's almost like by saying it, he wants to make it true. And he describes him as a charm. So, you know, this body charms you. Uh, so where the affect comes in is talking about how each of these sites makes someone feel and then how someone comes in to intervene and asks you to feel a different way. Um, and if that's effective. Very cool. Community. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your, uh, your goals with these stories, because, you know, once you do the dissertation, you graduate, you know, go into a job. What are your, what are your plans for um, maybe adapting this story for a wider readership? Yeah. Um, it, it would be wonderful to publish. If it sounds exciting to anyone, please contact me. Um, I also, you know, this is just a small part of the interests I, I have in antiquity. Um, and I, I hope that this is an example of the ways in which little stories of antiquity are incredibly captivating. Another part of the reason that I came to Sacred Rights was because I believe these stories are worth telling in public, um, whether that's online or, you know, through museum work, which I would be absolutely interested in pursuing as a future. Um, but, you know, as you well know, the magic that happens is in a classroom is one of the best of all. So absolutely. OK, so you, you just alluded to museum work a little bit as well. And this is and you also mentioned that this is just one tiny sliver of your interests. So I want to dive into some of your other interests now as well, because you also write extensively 
about the Museum of the Bible and the land of Israel. Um, so I want to dive into these couple of pieces that you've written as well. But tell me a little bit about how you got interested in the Museum of the Bible, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, I think many early Christian studies people got very interested in the Museum of the Bible. Um, it felt like the kind of public scholarship we wished we could do, given funds and uh, and a story. So, but then when as we were watching it unfold, I think I speak for a lot of us. Um, the economies that that museum fostered were bad. They were black market illegal economies. Um, and then when we entered the building to kind of assess the exhibits, those were also um, in service of, of their public goal, which uh, was to tell a united story of the Christian tradition. Um, and so I walked into it actually, um, we'll get to this in a little bit, but through a Foucault seminar. Um, and when I was looking at their rhetoric and what they were doing with the museum, a huge thread of it seemed to be a dependence on the land of Israel. And I use this phrase land of Israel really intentionally. Um, it's not the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. It's not the region. It's a very particular holy land and the way that they the museum seems to present it most is that's as the first century land of israel where jesus walked that is highly sacred worth protecting um, and worth revisiting again and again as a as a faithful christian um so it's a time the land of israel is a time and a place okay and it's reiterated again and again in the museum um and I think it's done in order to assure visitors and Christians that they too can be embedded in this time and this place. And that is, you know, proper piety and proper belief. And it kind of masked, um, it presents itself as, as history and archeology. span So it feels scientific. It feels like something you can buy into and feel confident of your footing. Um, but when you start to peel back the layers, you realize, um, it was invented and it wasn't invented by the museum. This is operating in, I think, evangelical communities like the ones I grew up in um, all the time. Gotcha. Okay. So I want to get into some of the critiques that you have of the museum itself and its exhibits. But before we get into that, I want to know what you think about the purpose of museums is generally from your view as a scholar of things ancient, how do you see the purpose of a museum today when it's done well? Yeah, museums, oh my gosh, they can be great, right? Okay, so for some people, they can be great. You get the moment of seeing something that you could never have seen before, um, whether that's from a faraway place or a faraway time. Um, these are really public educational institutions, but museums were born um, as ways to display kind of the loot of colonialism originally, and to kind of invite Europeans and American citizens into a spectator position on those faraway places in time. So even as it brings things close, um, it reminds you that it's far away. Um, and so there's there's a lot of good that can be done in them. The people who work with museums as, as conservators and taking care of these precious objects are, are so important, um, but we're really in a complicated place with museums right now. Um, so we have them, they can do a lot of good, and we're also entering a moment of reckoning for how we got them. <laughs> Yeah, and how we got the items that are in certain museums, like oh, far, far away from their lands of origin. You know, like whenever I go to a museum in a certain city and I see something from someplace that's like 8,000 miles away, my mind just starts racing about how there are likely atrocities um, associated with particular items that I'm looking at just like on a casual Saturday in like New York City. You know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, it's a it's a tough position. There's always the option of repatriation, which is when a museum gives something back to the place that took it from. 
But as you can imagine, museums aren't very um, quick to take that option. So. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's return to the land of Israel and the museum, the Bible here. Um, you you write in one of your, your pieces that you sent me um, about ways that Christians valorize the land of Israel. Can you say a little bit about more about what that means to you? Yeah. So <clears throat> the story, right? The story of, of Jesus, the one that, um, that we bound up in the leather book and we live according to if we're insiders to the Christian community, it happened somewhere. Uh, it happened in Israel um, and it's embedded in a history that goes back much farther than the Christian tradition. Um, but modern Christians, and I'm really indebted to anthropologists actually, like James Biello and Hilary Kyle um, for showing me a lot of this. Um, Christians love to take pilgrimages to Israel, but when they go, they only really look at old things. They don't kind of reckon with the modern conflicts that are happening, but they go and they go to the sites where Jesus walked and they feel transcendent when they go there and they buy some souvenirs that are incredibly meaningful and they take them home. That's one way that Christians interact with the land of Israel. Another way they interact with it is politically. Uh, so during the Trump administration, when he moved the US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, that was a political bid um, in honor of the land of Israel and a claim to be protecting it. Um, because I think in the evangelical imagination, the land of Israel from the first century is still there and they have to protect it. Um, but, you know, at the cost of, of living people uh, who, who are there, <laughs> mm. um, who kind of disappear in that narrative. Um, so those are some ways that they interact with it. Um, they also, you know, aesthetically, you know, so it's visually represented so many times in the museum. Excellent. Well, let's, let's dive into the museum itself. Um, so where is the Museum of the Bible for anybody out there who may not know? It's in Washington, D.C. Okay. So I'm curious about the ways the Museum of the Bible provides access to the conceptual land of Israel. So you mentioned in the piece simulated pilgrimage via the Museum of the Bible. What does this mean? Great. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, first of all, take pilgrimages to the Museum of the Bible. It's much easier to reach than Israel mm -hmm. for many people. Uh, and once you're there, there are two great ways that you can feel like you're on pilgrimage in Israel. Um, one of them is this like 3D experience where you put on goggles and you get to fly over all of these important sites. Um, in Israel that you might've gone to if you had actually gone. And another way is through this Nazareth village reconstruction. You walk in and they tell, it's supposed to feel like you're in first century Nazareth, which mm. is where Jesus grew up. Um, the people who designed it went to Israel themselves and took like 3D scans of actual rocks around so that they could just like produce this reality in this place. And um, up until when the museum first opened and it has stopped doing this now, partially I think because of critiques so many of us raised, had reenactments by Dawson's dressed in, uh, you know, first century clothing who, you know, the example I give is a man who dressed up as a rabbi, told a story about this mysterious Jesus who came through and, um, and said, you know, we drove him out but if you see him, send him back so we can engage with what he says. It's like engage with language is very strange to me. Um, so he restages the conflict between Jews and Christians. Mm -hmm. And in a Jewish voice, that's not an actor's voice. It's not really Jewish. Begs you to evangelize <laughs> to him. Um, so, so those are two of two of the ways, two of the more explicit ways that the museum stages pilgrimages to the land of Israel for its visitors. Okay. How do they, do they, does the, does the museum of the Bible romanticize archeology span at all? It does. Um, and both I and Kevin Kincannon have written about this a lot. Um, they present artifacts 
they actually have a strong relationship with the Israel Antiquities Authority um, and they uh, present objects and kind of narrate a continuity between Israel, like history in the region to the history of Christianity. Um, some of those are real artifacts and some of them are copies or facsimiles. So they have copies of the Rosetta Stone to embed mm. in the narrative. Um, but when I asked people around me, what does this mean that it says facsimile on the label? They didn't know. So it's mm. like sort of an, it presents itself as having artifacts that it doesn't really have. Um, and there's also, you know, the Dead Sea Scroll fragment, the forged Dead Sea Scroll fragments that they acquired, um, which they have since admitted, or I think it's been found that all of them were forged. Um, but they presented their access to them as like really validating the authority of the museum. Mm -hmm. um, so this sort of romance of I have the object, so I have the story. And it's a continuous uninterrupted story and it ends in Christ. Um, mm. Interesting. Okay, well, I'm thinking about any problems that may arise with regards to, you know, reconstructing the land of Israel at this museum. Does the museum perpetuate any, like, colonialist tropes, um, biblical literalism, things like that? Like, what are some of the, like, the perpetuations that occur because of this museum's uh, approach to things? Yeah, it does. Um, it reinscribes the colonialism of of European encounter with with this area and European sort of ownership of the region as a place to stage and play out proper religion. Uh, so, you know, an artifact that seems to verify the Christian story. Um, if a European explorer came across it in like 1890, like it's mine, like mm. I'm taking it. that's good evidence and I'm taking it home. Um, and that's a hugely colonialist encounter. And I mean, you know, we could get into talking about the establishment of the state of Israel in the 1940s and 50s um, as a European project um, that, uh, that displaces bodies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's definitely reinscribed in the museum as well. You don't hear about the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis in this museum. Um, so, you know, which bodies stories are worth telling is, is really obvious there. Yeah. One of the earliest uh, interviews that I did on the show was talking about um, Palestinian displacement. And it's one of the concepts and it's one of the, the histories that my students deeply love learning about as well. Um, you know, and within this museum, you also write about like a, like almost like a cheesy interactiveness that is like throughout the museum of the Bible that you write about. I, I love the term that you use manipulative of the visitor's body. And that was so interesting. Can you say a little bit more about the uh, interactiveness throughout the museum that you, you know, that you dabbled in? Yeah, okay, so first of all, every space will manipulate you, right? Like, that's sure. just, a door handle presents itself. Yeah, you, <laughs> very good point. You do. Um, so I don't want to say that, um, and all museums direct you where to go. The paths go certain places, and you sure. follow them, and the labels tell you what to think. Uh, the Museum of the Bible, I was trying, when I visited, I was trying to pay a lot of attention to when it pulled my body forward. Mm. And I experienced it way less linearly than I've experienced other more pedagogical museum or more explicitly teaching oriented museums. Uh, it felt sort of spirally and like I was kind of moved from place to place so that it all felt like a unity and uh, I wasn't pulled forward to read labels. I wasn't pulled forward to notice the word facsimile, for example, if I were just visiting. I was pulled toward interactives, which, okay, a lot of museums are really interactive right now. Like, you know, they know that it's good to engage the visitor. Sure. <laughs> um, but the interactives were the places where the artifacts story and continuity was told. 
So like that, um, that interactive Nazareth village, for example, that's where they tell the story that they want you to get from the museum and it, they want you to embody it. That's why it's interactive. That's the best way to teach it to you. Um, so the more cerebral sort of label reading things aren't there. I go. And the seating areas are all sort of oriented around interactive. So if I want to rest, it's where I can witness that, you know, embodying the agenda happening. Mm. Um, so seating is very purposefully placed. It's not like a bench just off to the side in the middle of a large gallery where there's not something happening to you while you're sitting in the seat. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. Lots of videos to watch. Interesting. So Sarah, I should, I should have asked this earlier, but um, for anybody out there listening who doesn't know what a facsimile is, can you go ahead and explain what that means? It's an exact copy. Um, so just like way back when fax machines, facsimile yeah. machines. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I just wanted to clarify the term for anybody out there listening who, who, Maybe that's a new vocab word for everybody, you know? Um, well, yeah, and I think that's what was happening in the museum. I love it. So I'm curious, like, what you feel we lose because of the focused interactiveness of the museum and the Bible. Like, what is lost in, like, the human mind when everything happens the way it does in a museum of that kind? There's less push to weave your insights together yourself um, in a room with many objects, you can kind of feel disoriented. And in fact, I did not like going to museums as a young person because it didn't feel like I knew what was supposed to get out of it. Um, I didn't know how all these objects fit together, but that's the great project. Um, that's what we ask our students to do, I think, is to piece together disparate information, guiding them, of course, but um, the sort of receptivity that comes with, you know, watching a film uh, discourages that, I think. Um, a lot of questions, a lot of, you know, public thinking on the Museum of the Bible ends with what do you wish it looked like if you got to start a Museum of the Bible? And all the scholars that I talked to about it, um, we want to see rupture, we want to see disagreement, we want to see all the ways in which the Bible resists itself because there are so many voices in the Bible. Uh, we want to see all the different weird things people have done with it. We don't just want to see the good things or the respectable things. So, um, so that was an opportunity lost, I think. That sounds amazing. That's the kind of museum I want to go to. You know what I mean? <laughs> Me too. I love that because one of the things you notice like when you read the Bible is like there are like certain contradictions and conflicts here and there. And I want to know about those things. Like that's who I am as a viewer when I go and look at objects like that. But um, you wrote another piece about this called Incompatible Sites, the Land of Israel and the Ambulant Body in the Museum of the Bible. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes so people can just go within their own podcast app and click directly on that link to read. Um, but maybe can you tell me a little bit about this article as well and like what you're what you're arguing and the premise of that article was? Yeah. Um, so it's a lot of what we've been talking about, actually. Yeah. It's about the way that a museum, and especially this museum, um, rapidly collects and accumulates a bunch of the past and establishes ownership over it. And then the way it acts back on the body to help the body absorb it. Mm -hmm. And when I say body, I use that word a lot and I think it sounds kind of pretentious when I do it, but I really mean an embodied mind. It's like all of you, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that article is kind of the skeleton and what we've been talking about from the public, the imprint piece, I think is the flesh of it. So what's always lurking under it is this piece in compatible sites. Um, and I started thinking with this guy, Michel Foucault. Yeah, tell who, me about Foucault. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and when I drop these names, like when I drop scholars' names, I really want your uh, listeners to hear it as an invitation instead of sort of an intimidation. It's oh, like, I want you to know who I've been thinking with and be able to go read it yourself. But um, so Foucault, a lot of people know Foucault. Greatest hits, like Discipline and Punish, Jails Are bad, but also like built in certain ways where people can watch each other and other people can't watch each other. Um, Madison civilization, like why do we keep sending people with aberrant like psyches out of the community? Weird thing to do. Um, 
And he's also obsessed with early Christianity, though I don't deal with that as much in my work, actually, surprisingly. Um, where I think most in this piece is a radio interview he did. So he was on podcast too, um, called Of Other Spaces in uh, the, in 1967, I believe, or 19, yeah, 1967. And he's just kind of thinking out loud about like, spaces are different from each other. Some spaces feel weird to me, like museums and cemeteries, which mm -hmm. is like what I write about. So, um, and he calls them heterotopias, so other places. Um, and he says, you can tell when you're in a heterotopia because time's kind of accumulated. So the past is there with you in the present, um, sort of like, you know, in a, in a very messy way. Uh, you can tell when you're in a heterotopia because a lot of different places seem to be in the same place at the same time. Like um, first century Israel is now in this building with me. Um, and Another like main theme of his work though, is like, you gotta be careful of like what you're feeling at any given time. Like someone's doing it, <laughs> something's doing it to you. Um, power he says is polymorphous. It takes many shapes. Um, and so when I was interrogating my weird feelings in the museum of the Bible, he seemed like an obvious place to go um, to kind of think through why I was feeling like there were so many places and times at work there and why I felt so operated on. Um, and, and that's what that piece is all about. Um, it's a way of showing who I was thinking with when I was thinking about what the museum did. Fantastic. Well, you know, to kind of bring us to a, a close, I have a, a question that um, is, has been, you know, jumping through my mind for the last hour or so. Earlier, I asked you what it was for you about studying the ancient. I asked you to respond personally, like, why do you care about studying something that is so ancient to us in 2021? But what I want to know now is why you hope people, other people in 2021 should care about the ancient too. Yeah, uh, that's a great question and actually kind of a charged one right now where um, we see the alt-right taking the ancient for themselves as structuring stories for their own movements. Um, when I went to college, we had to promise to <laughs> discover what is strange and make it our friend, which I just hold with me forever. I think we should care about the ancient because it shows us that things can be different, that things can be otherwise than they are now. So a lot of people study the ancient because they want to find uh, similarity or like they want to make relations, see where things are similar to the way they feel and be like, we're not so different after all. Um, but what it actually shows us is like, is very different. And in a lot of ways that's bad. We don't want to be like ancient Rome or ancient Antioch. Um, but it shows us that the furniture in the room we're living in can be rearranged. <laughs> so stuff got to where it is for a reason and stuff has been different in the past. Like, how do we change? <laughs> um, it, I think it leaves us less helpless in the face of, of our current, current lives. Um, is the house still haunted? Like, yes, many ghosts to reckon with, like lots of violences to, to deal with and atone for, but. Fabulous. Well, Sarah, what are a couple of your goals over the next couple of years academically? Uh, I hope to finish my dissertation <laughs> next year. Um, I've got about a year left. Um, and uh, I hope to continue forming good relationships with students. That's the most important thing to me in my vocation. Uh, and yeah, I hope to find more ways to to use all this fascinating stuff with people, whether that's by teaching or by um, publishing or editing or um, working in a museum. Uh, I just want to continue to keep these things alive a little bit and keep working with them. Where can people find you if they want to know more about your work and follow along? I'm on Twitter at PorterSF, so P-O-R-T-E-R-S-F. 
and I'm sure I have an academic profile somewhere, but I do not have the URL handy at the moment, but you can always find me. You can always find anyone in the state. <laughs> well, Sarah Porter, this has been a true delight talking about ancient things, but also things that are very modern that people can go and see with their very eyes today and maybe rethink about how they're experiencing those moments in our day-to-day lives now. Um, This has been a a conversation that spans like a couple of millennia in an hour, which I think is so, so cool. Um, Thank you so much for spending some time with me to come on Classical Ideas today. I've just had a real, real thrill talking to you. Thank you so much. It's been so fun. And I want to say from listening to your podcasts, um, you embody the generosity and curiosity that is so important for this work. And I appreciate this, this project you put together. Goodness, thank you so much. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. Support for this episode of Classical Ideas was provided by Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation project. Explore the work of Sacred Rights at sacred-rights.org.